particularly this morning about verse 17, which I'll read again. So he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So last week, if you were here, or if you were watching on live stream, you may remember that the theme was, what Athens did to Paul? What did Athens do to Paul? And the answer is that it deeply, deeply stirred him within. It agitated him. It provoked him. It moved him. He couldn't amble through the streets like a tourist. He was provoked in his spirit. Why? Because he saw that that city was absolutely swarming with idols, with statues, with temples, with inscriptions, with visual reminders all over the place to this or that God. And why did that upset Paul? Here's the reason. Because it meant that the one true God, the Father who is almighty, who made heaven and earth and everything in it that we've just been talking about, he was not being worshipped. He was not being recognized. He, that God, was not being glorified. So where do we go today? Well, we need to remember why we're looking at this passage. We may not be in Athens, but we are in modern-day Athens. And if Paul was stirred and provoked by what he saw in Athens 2,000 years ago, we as the church of God should be stirred and provoked by idolatry today. What do I mean by idolatry? I mean the way in which people all over the world give praise and glory and recognition to that which is less than God. And they disregard and do not honor and glorify God the way they should. Times have changed. Culture has changed. Language has changed. Clothing has changed. Technology has changed. Attitudes have changed. But the big picture hasn't changed. And what's the big picture? As Christians, we must bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only message of eternal hope and salvation, into this world of darkness and ignorance. Because the gospel of Jesus is the only message that brings life and salvation to a lost and dying world. And the big question is, all right then, we've seen what Athens did to Paul, but what did Paul do in Athens? And what should we do in the world, therefore? And the answer is simply this. Verse 17, so he reasoned. Paul reasoned. Let's look at that under the usual three points this morning. First of all, why Paul reasoned? Why did Paul reason? 
Well, the word, the Greek word for reasoned, is closely related uh, to our word dialogue. You know what a dialogue is, don't you? Paul held a dialogue with the people of Athens. Paul discussed. Paul conversed. Paul debated. Paul engaged in conversation with people. He used words. He communicated and appealed to their minds, to their thinking. He interacted with them, with their understanding. And that is so vitally important that we understand. That's what we should also do. The Christian faith is a matter for dialogue, for thoughtful reasoning. Herman Bavink, one of the greatest theologians that the Netherlands produced, and they've produced a vast number for a small country of their size, uh, he wrote a summary of the Christian faith with a very simple but profound title, Our Reasonable Faith. Our faith as Christians is reasonable. What does that mean? It's something that can be worked through. It's a matter for the mind, for the understanding. People become Christians and people grow as Christians as their minds receive the truth which God has made known. The first thing that Paul does in Athens is he wants to reason with these people. We need to stress this. Because I'm sure you've heard people say things like this. Faith goes against reason. Having faith is believing something that you know or think isn't actually true. You've got to suspend your ability to reason. The American author Mark Twain, creator of Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, uh, once wrote, one of his little sayings was this, faith is believing what you know ain't so. And that wasn't one of his best sayings. We need to take issue with Mark Twain on that. Because the Apostle Paul saw no conflict no contradiction between, uh, between faith, belief, trust, and reason. Not here, not at any time. And maybe you remember that occasion later on in Acts when Paul is, is a prisoner. And he's in front of the Roman governor Festus. And he's talking about Christ risen from the dead. Acts 26, verse 24, and as Paul is saying these things in his defense, Festus says with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Paul, the fact that you're saying these things about Jesus and being risen from the dead suggests that you've, you've lost your balance. You've gone mad. You're insane. You've lost a grasp on reality. You should be in a lunatic asylum somewhere. You've got some mental illness. And Paul says, I'm not mad. Most excellent Festus. 
I'm speaking true and rational words. What I'm talking about, says Paul, is a matter of reason and truth that can be discussed and debated and talked about and thought about. And the finest minds in the world can and should engage with these things. I'm sane, says Paul. I'm sober. I'm reasonable. These things are true. These things are reasonable. The Christian faith is something to be communicated through reasonable dialogue. We should talk about what Christians believe. Ask questions about it. Discuss it. Christians do not take refuge behind myths or fables or empty stories or traditions which have no basis in reality and cannot be intelligently discussed. You don't become a Christian just by saying a few words and you don't know what they mean and you have no idea about them and you just say them in a parrot-like fashion. That's not how you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian by passing through some mysterious kind of ceremony that you have no grasp over what it means. You don't suspend your mind. You don't deny your intelligence. On the contrary, let me put it like this. If a child of any age asks their parent a question about the Bible, about the Christian faith, about God, about anything like that, it is an entirely reasonable thing to do. And it's reasonable that the parent should try and answer that question if they can. I just say to the children of all ages, ask your parents anything you like about the Bible, about God, about being a Christian, and these things ought to be discussed. There is a place for them to be looked at, to be talked about. That's exactly what the Bible is saying here. Our Christian faith is reasonable. Remember maybe how Peter puts it in his first letter, chapter 3, verse 15. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And that word defense means quite literally from reason. What is every Christian called to do? To be able to give a reason for their Christian hope. To be able to dialogue about our faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Paul reasoned. But then secondly, let's see where Paul reasoned. And again in verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And just to comment that when it says Paul reasoned 
It's a grammatical point, this. It's in the imperfect tense, which basically means this. Paul was reasoning all the time. He, he went on reasoning, wherever he was. He didn't do it just once. Paul was reasoning in so many places. But where did he reason? With whom did he reason? Well, Paul went first to the synagogue, where he reasoned with the Jews and the devout persons. And that was always Paul's practice wherever he went on his travels, to go to the synagogue first. There were Jews scattered all over the Mediterranean world in which Paul lived, meeting in their synagogues. And with these Jews, there were what are called here devout persons, people like Lydia, whom we read of in the earlier chapter. They weren't Jewish by birth, but they are sometimes called God-fearers. They had come to see that there was one true God only, the God of Israel. And they identified themselves as worshippers of this one true God. Now, Paul always went to these places first. Why? I think there's a very practical reason why. These were the people who seemed most likely to listen to what Paul had to say, to give him a hearing. Of all the people in Athens, the Jews and the God-fearers were the ones who should have been as provoked and agitated by all this idolatry as Paul himself was. Wouldn't they heartily agree with Paul that these statues and temples to Athena and Aphrodite and Ares and Poseidon and Zeus and all the rest, that these were a blasphemy against the God of Israel? Couldn't Paul at least have some kind of head start with these people and assume that they shared these convictions with him. Paul went to the Jews because they were the ones who should have been as agitated by the idolatry as he was. And there is some wisdom for us here, isn't there, I think? As we live in our own modern Athens, we want to reason with people about the Christian faith. Where do we start? Well, surely this suggests we try to begin with people who we know hold some common ground with us. So we don't need to spend too long establishing what that common ground is. First to the Jews, and then to the Gentiles. First to those with whom we hold a good deal in common, if we're able to do that. And yet we know, don't we, from this book of Acts, that some of these people were the very ones who rejected Paul and rejected the gospel most violently. So what else do we read in verse 17? We read that Paul reasoned in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He went to where the people were. He went to where they happened to be. 
And he spoke to anyone and everyone who were brought along by God's own providence. Now, I want to ask you a question. How do we apply this? How do you apply this? Do we do exactly what Paul did? Do we all, every day, for example, just go to the nearest marketplace-type situation we can find, whether it be Camberwell Green or or, uh, somewhere, the bandstand in Ruskin Park, and we all just stand there and we wait for people to come and we talk to those who come along. Is that what we should do? It may not be as straightforward as that. We need to apply the principle of what Paul did, but we need to adapt it according to our circumstances. Let me make this point. There's a real danger, I think, that with this whole passage and other passages a bit like it, like, for example, Jesus talking to the woman by the well in Samaria, that we simply say, ah, this is a training manual for personal evangelism. That's what it is. We follow what Paul did almost by the letter. We go to some big public place and we all stand there and we all reason with the passers-by and that's what the Bible tells us to do. And that is not realistic or helpful. Okay? Paul was a man and an apostle with a unique calling and ministry and gifts. And we need to be wise about how we put this verse into practice ourselves. So let me ask you a number of important questions about your own situation, about your own faith even, about your own circumstances, as to how you and I might apply this. Let me ask you first of all, are you provoked in your spirit when people around you do not worship the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ as the one true God. And if you are not bothered by that, if that doesn't really affect you, then you will not have any desire to want to reason with people about God and about Jesus Christ. There will be no motivation for you to do that. But if you are stirred, as Paul was, by the fact that people all around us do not know God and are without God and Christ in this world and are on their way to an eternal destruction, then you will be moved and you will have a desire to share. And we need that clear spiritual conviction first. Let me ask you another question. Who are the people that you encounter on a regular basis? Well, that is your natural marketplace. These are the people that you are able to meet with and engage with and reason with. Another question. When is an appropriate time And what is an appropriate place for you 
to reason with people. It shouldn't be when you and they are preoccupied with tasks that demand concentration and attention. The time and place should be appropriate. When you are free from distractions, during a break, during a lunchtime, or on a journey. Let me say this. Christians whose apparent zeal for the gospel causes them to neglect their responsibilities at work are invariably bad witnesses. We need to know the right time and the right place. Another question. What is the most natural way for you to reason with people? For you. Do you know yourself? Maybe you, like me, find it quite hard to hold forth in a crowded, noisy room with lots of people, in a busy office or a staff room. And in that case, you're better off talking to individuals one at a time or in a small group. But if you do find it easy with a larger group, then that is who you are and you're different and that's your gift and you should stir that gift up. We are all wonderfully different. Or maybe you find it easier to engage with people in a slightly less in-your-face manner. You're better on the phone. You're better by social media. Maybe you would rather discreetly leave some literature lying around or a social media post rather than direct conversation. Let me give you another scenario. Take a situation where you do feel provoked and stirred and even angry, but you can't find the words there and then to say without blurting out something that would actually be more destructive than constructive. What should you do? You should think through and pray through that situation patiently. Remember what Peter says. In all that you say, do it with gentleness and respect. Take a bit longer to think about the issue that has been raised. Talk about it with others. Dialogue about it with others. Pray for that situation. Pray for those people. Pray for future opportunities. But let me say this again. With all of these qualifications I might speak about, we must not lose heart. We must not lose courage. Zeal for God. Zeal for Jesus Christ. Zeal for the gospel. Zeal and concern for the salvation of lost souls is right and good, and to be fanned into flame. Remember how Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 19 and 20. Wonderful words. Words for us when we might feel it's very, very hard to reason with people. Do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. 
There are times when we need to simply prayerfully rely on the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit to use us and our personalities and our situations and the issues around us and to speak as we feel led and governed by the Spirit who is in us if we are indeed children of God who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus then says, For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. However, we come now to the really important question. It's one thing knowing why we should reason. And it's another knowing where we should reason, with whom we should reason. But what matters most is what we should reason, what we should be talking about. My third and final point then is this, what Paul reasoned. And I jump on ahead to verse 18 for a moment. Chapter 17 and verse 18 in the book of Acts. And there at the end of that verse we see what Paul was talking about in Athens. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And that word preaching is quite literally he was evangelizing. Or he was gospeling. The Greek word euangelion, evangelion, is the word for gospel. What is an evangelist? One who shares the gospel. What is the subject of evangelism? It is the gospel. And what is the gospel that Paul was preaching in Athens? It all centers on this. It is this. Jesus. Jesus. And the resurrection. That's the great thing. And this is the point. If the heart and substance of what Paul is talking about in Athens is Jesus and the resurrection, then it will be the same for us today. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the message of salvation. This is what people must hear. This alone is how people will be saved from everlasting death. Only by hearing the gospel, which is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The Jews in their synagogues, the God-fearers along with them, and all the people in the marketplace, and all the people of Athens and Camberwell and London and everywhere who hear that word and believe. And I'll say this again. This is the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ is reasonable truth. It is to be reasoned. We don't say to people, come and listen to a story that I'll tell you about some character who lived a long time ago who may not even have existed. But it's a lovely story. It'll do you some good. It'll carry you away. A bit of escapism for you. You can leave this world and all its troubles and enjoy this this wonderful myth and song that I'll share with you and you'll feel better about life. It's not like that at all. We reason with people about everything that there is in reality. And we work our way to Jesus Christ and the resurrection. We direct people to solid, historically factual reality. That 2,000 years ago, in a little town called Bethlehem, during Roman occupation, a baby boy was born. 
born to a woman who was a virgin, born without a human father, and that this man really lived in Israel 2,000 years ago. And he did wonderful things, and he taught, and he preached, and he healed, and he cast out demons, and he gave sight to the blind, and he raised the dead, and these things happened, and they're recorded. And we can point them to the evidence and say, here's the Bible that tells you these things. Here's other evidence too that you can look to that this Jesus lived. This is not the stuff of fairy tales. He went to the cross. He died at the hands of a Roman governor called Pontius Pilate who really existed. We said that earlier on. He died. He was buried. And then three days later, the tomb was empty. And this Jesus was seen alive. And the proof of it is powerful, indeed incontestable when you look at it. And people have tried to disprove it and have been persuaded that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. And then we go on and explain why these things happened and had to happen. That this Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and his death was the sacrifice for sin. And that by believing And trusting in Jesus, you and me and anyone can have our sins forgiven and be reconciled to God and know eternal life. Now, I just want to say something else before we're done. You might say, well, that's all there is to say. We've said it. Finished. Job done. But as Paul was reasoning these things, he was reasoning as a man who knew Jesus, who knew the resurrection in a way that was profoundly real and living and personal. And if he hadn't known Jesus in this way, would he have spoken as he did? Would he have lived as he did? Would he have reasoned as he did? Would he have preached as he did? Would he have lived and died as he did? And what about you and me? Because this morning, I'm preaching to you. I'm reasoning with you. And I'm saying to you, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you know his resurrection? Do these great subjects resonate with you, which means as you hear them, does your heart beat to the same rhythm as Paul's heart, as the heart of the Bible, as the heart of God himself? What Paul is not doing is just marching these Athenians through a number of points like some kind of academic syllabus and saying, Do you agree with this? Do you agree with that? Do you agree with the other? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Tick, 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 tick. There we are. You're a Christian. Join the club. He's not doing that. That's not evangelizing. It's to be filled with the Spirit of God. It's to know this Jesus. It's to be filled with him. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection because Jesus and the resurrection are above and beyond and greater than any idol. What do I mean? Remember again, this man Paul was provoked in his spirit 
because he looked around Athens and he saw the cheapness and the tackiness and the vanity and the futility and the the meagerness of these little idols. And he was filled with Christ and he was saying in effect, you worship these statues of gods who are not gods at all, but I proclaim to you the one who is eternal God, the one who is from the beginning, the image of the invisible God, God the Son from all eternity, infinite, almighty, and creator, and the one who took our human flesh, who took our human nature, who became incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, who was conceived without sin and who lived without sin. And then Paul was full of Jesus in his, in his life and his works and his miracles. And as we look at Jesus, we say, what a man and what a God. How vastly, infinitely greater than all the idols of Athens, London, Paris, New York, and the whole world over is this Jesus. Look at this man. Look at his humble character. Look at his meekness. That he's the servant of the Lord. That this Jesus is the one to whom the Father was giving everything. And yet this Jesus, you see, don't you find this astonishing? He knows all these things. But he takes off his outer garments and he wraps a towel round his waist and he kneels down and he washes the dirty, filthy feet of his own disciples. This is the Jesus we're talking about. What a man, what a saviour, what a son of God. But then there's more than that, isn't there? What are all the idols of Athens? What are all the idols of the world compared to Jesus Christ in his person and in his work? In his work. Because as Paul looked round Athens, he was heartbroken. And he thought, here are all these people going routinely to their shrines and their temples and their little street corners and their statues, thinking that they're going to do them some good somehow, and they won't any more than our modern day idols will do you or me any good. These people are lost and condemned in their sin. They were then, they are now. People are lost and condemned in their sin. So Jesus's, so Paul's response was not only to preach the person of Jesus, but to preach the work of Jesus, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had to die, but not for himself. He did not need to die. In one sense, it was not right that he should die. There was no sin in him that he should die. So why did he die? He died in the place of sinners. He died the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. His grace, his mercy, his love. His humbling himself to death, even the death of the cross. What a saviour. Hallelujah. What a saviour. But his death is not the end. He rose from the dead. He appeared alive to his disciples. 
in a resurrection body. Because death has been conquered. Sin has been conquered. Eternal life has been secured. And that means, friends, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and only in him, you will one day rise. You will live forever. You will have a body like his. Death will never claim you ever again. This is the good news of salvation. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What could all the idols of Athens and of London and of every place do compared to Jesus Christ? You see, not only do we need to know the facts of the gospel, but we need to know the power of the gospel, the reality of the gospel. Don't stand at a distance from it. Don't handle it like some text that is removed from you, that you you handle with gloves on. There's no need for gloves when it comes to the gospel. Take it to yourself. Take Jesus into yourself. He's part of you. He's in you. He's in his people. This is not reasoning that we do about some dry academic subject. You know, we might go and give a talk to our class about uh, some subject, historical, scientific, literary, and we talk about it with a calm, detached, academic distance and say, well, you know, I'm going to tell you today about, about the works of Shelley. I'll tell you today about uh, atomic physics, so we can be removed about it. I'll tell you today about French grammar. We can be dispassionate about it. We just talk about it as something that is removed from us. It's a subject. It's something in a book. But that's not true of Jesus, you see. He's in his people. We live because he lives. This is not only reason or logic. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones used to call logic on fire. It's truth. It's a person. It's the Son of God who masters us, who makes his home with us, who claims us as his own who calls us by the power of the Holy Spirit and fills us and goes on filling us. And he enables us to say that this Jesus demands my soul, my life, my all. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is mighty to save like him? What grace, what love, what pity that he has on miserable sinners like us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And long before we think about reasoning with other people, we need to make sure we've reasoned with ourselves and that this gospel has come to us and that Jesus Christ himself has come and made us his own. Let's pray together.